turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them. 2020 cannot stop us. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. All right. Today, you guys, we are joined by Ross Simmons, the CEO of Foundation, a content marketing agency that you need to know about. All right. We are not going to wait for this. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Ross, welcome to the Marketing Millennials. Thanks for having me. I'm so pumped and excited to chat with you both. Let's jump in. Let's have some fun. I'm thrilled to be here. We are pumped to have you too. Daniel, I know we've been talking a lot about your friend Ross, and it's time to just pick your brain. Let's do it. Let's just start with the basics. Tell us how you got into marketing and your marketing journey. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I've been a a little bit of a geek in terms of just like being obsessed with the internet and all things technology for a very long time. Obsessed with video games when I was a young kid. But I came across a movie when I was very young in my formative years called Boomerang, which was a movie that starred Eddie Murphy. And it was about this guy who had this amazing career in advertising. And he had this over-the-top lifestyle. And I saw this movie when I was probably like 12 years old. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. I want to be like him. And that got me like looking into this whole idea that, oh, you can like tell stories for a living. You can create messaging and help brands tell their story and help them generate money. And then you get money too. Like it just started to blow my mind. So long story, a little bit longer. I went off to university, studied marketing. That essentially was my beginning into this world and into this space. And while I was doing my degree in marketing, I quickly realized that none of the professors were really talking about what I thought the future was going to be, which was the internet. I was learning about billboards. I was learning about radio. I was learning about TV ads. They were having us do case studies on like the original rebrands for brands that no longer existed. And I was like, this makes absolutely no sense. I remember walking into the library and seeing all of the computers and everybody was playing Jetman. Some of the millennials will remember what that is (laughs) on Facebook because Facebook had this game called Jetman and everybody was playing it. And I was like, okay, Nobody's watching billboards. Everybody's spending their time on their computers. This is how you're going to sell to people in the future. So I just started to write about my thoughts and ideas around how the internet was going to be a thing and how brands need to wake up to it. And eventually, people started to read it. People started to consume that content. And people eventually believed, oh, this Ross guy might know what he's talking about. And then my career kind of evolved and was built on the back of that website, rossimmons.com, way back in the day. Dang. So you kind of jumped straight into personal branding. Yeah. Before I knew what it was, I was just like, originally, so rossimmons.com originally was actually a completely different blog. It was immediately talking about fantasy sports. So I'm a big football guy, diehard Eagles fan since the early days. So shout out to the Eagles two years ago, wanting the ship. That was when I decided I was okay to bring life into the world. And I had my daughter shortly after, but 
long story again, longer. I had a fantasy football blog. And with that fantasy football blog, I got really good at creating content for the internet. And that's when I realized that this internet thing could actually generate money because I was able to pay for a portion of my tuition using my fantasy football blog. And that was when I was like, okay, this is something. This is really an opportunity. But my marks started to drop. So my mom had a very blunt conversation with me about how I need to like really start focusing on my studies. So I went from writing every single day about football to writing every single day about marketing and business. And that became kind of the personal brand that is today, Ross Simmons and Foundation, et cetera. That's amazing. Yeah. And Ferg's probably so super pumped about that because she comes from a football background, NFL. Yeah. I played college football, so... Nice, nice. I was never good. My legs were very skinny, so they couldn't keep up. Tell us about the, how did this foundation come about and like... Yeah. What made you start it? I know that you started RossSimmons.com and then how did it evolve into foundation? Yeah, for sure. So when I first got started, it was the Ross Simmons show. So it was just myself creating content, working with clients, etc. Prior to that, I was essentially working at a handful of different agencies. I had gotten some experience in the advertising world. That was always my ambition to like become an ad man. That was like when Mad Men was in its peak, I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to be one of those. And then over time, I quickly started to learn that game. And I quit and I said, okay, I'm going to start my own company and do this. So for a while there, I was just a freelancer. But then as the demand continuously increased, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to start building a team. There's a lot of people who want us or want me to create content, but I can't keep working until 4am. I can't keep doing the every single weekend, working over holidays, etc. I need to bite the bullet and take a chance and start hiring. And I took the leap, started to build out a team and foundation continues to grow, working primarily with SaaS and B2B companies. So our bread and butter is working with what oftentimes in my original world of kind of marketing and creative, they would have thought was a very boring space. We work at SaaS companies doing very traditional software as a service products, selling everything from software that would help you manage a roller coaster all the way through to software that would help you manage like a fleet of sales team or whatever that may be. So we do the the what most traditional marketers would say the boring work, but we love it. We love the idea of moving the needle in terms of sales and revenue. And if we can arm sales teams with more leads that actually turn into results and revenue, then that's the stuff that gets us excited. We get excited about helping organizations shift their market cap solely based off of the fact that we're generating more revenue year over year through organic. That's the stuff that gets us excited. Overall, foundation built on the back of content, we create and distribute content for B2B and SaaS companies. I've been following on Twitter for a while, and I think there's two-part question to this. One, how did the name come, The Cool is Cool? And then two, I see you pounding distribution, distribution, distribution. So I want to hear like your thoughts on like why you're hounding this. Why should people care about distribution? Yeah, so I think this is great combo. Two great questions. So the first question around the coolest school and where that name come from. Some of the millennials will be able to resonate with this. So there was an artist and still is an artist uh, named Lupe Fiasco. He had a song called The Cool. And The Cool was one of my favorite songs when I was in university. And I created my Twitter account when I was in university. On top of that, I made it my Twitter handle on purpose because there was a message in his song, The Cool, around how you should never strive to just be cool. You should just be yourself and do things that you are 
actually interested in. I can remember as a young kid, like watering down my interest in technology and watering down my interest in the internet because I wanted to be one of the cool kids. So I use that Twitter handle to be a reminder to myself that it's not about being cool. It's about doing whatever you're interested in. And it just turns out that people will think you're cool because you have your own niche, like interest. So that was the reason why I created the Twitter handle, The Coolest School. It comes off very egotistic and I'm okay with it. I try to just live up to the name when people meet me and if that works, then we're good. So that's kind of the Twitter handle. On top of that, the question around distribution. So when I was creating content in the early days, I remember pressing publish on a piece of content that was dedicated to, in my mind, put me on the map. I thought everyone in the industry was going to read this piece and be like, Ross is a genius. We all need to work with him. I put hours into creating this piece of content and I thought it would light the world on fire. Turns out it lit two people on fire, my friend John and my mom. They gave me two likes on Facebook and that was the only amount of engagement that I got on that piece of content. It sucked. I went and rolled into my bed and like curled up in a ball because my football content was fire. Thousands of people all over the world going crazy every time I said, you have to start LaDainian Tomlinson. People would go nuts because back then they didn't know he was going to be good, but I knew before he was. <laughs> that content was fire and it always hit. But when I started it first with the content creation stuff about marketing, nobody was listening. And what I realized looking back at it and what I realized after kind of analyzing why was my football content working and my marketing content not working, it was because with the football content, I already had a community. I was already distributing my content to people who wanted that story and wanted that messaging. I didn't have a marketing network. I only knew my buddy named John who happened to be in a marketing class with me and my mom who still supports anything and everything that I do. So when they see the content, of course, they're going to like it. But I didn't have any marketers in my network. So they weren't there to like the content or care about what I was creating. So that was when it was triggered that as much as the gurus will preach at the top of your lungs, create good content, create great content, and the world will be yours. The truth is you can create a great piece of content, but if it doesn't get in front of the right people, then it is for nothing. And you need to invest time and energy in distributing that content after you press publish, because that's when the life cycle of a piece of content truly starts to exist. That's amazing. I think the one thing that comes out of that, how do you find your audience? Because I had the same experience on LinkedIn, right? So yeah, I started posting marketing content and I just was getting... I actually started posting like content like all over and I realized I needed to niche down and just do marketing content. But I realized like 90% of my followers are just people that I met in college and met over. Nobody was marketers. So I started like following like 10 like influencers in marketing and started following who they were following and connecting with them. And that's kind of like how I started growing my following on like LinkedIn. But I want to hear like your thoughts on growing an audience and getting find those places. Good question. So I think it comes down to figuring out like, what is your own personal goal? Like a lot of folks are going to have different goals. So if you are trying to build a relationship in the wonderful world of marketing, then I think Daniel, like your strategy makes complete sense. That's what you're going to do. You're going to go find some of the influencers in the space, people who are actually influencing the conversations on a specific channel, start engaging with their content. And then the people who follow them are going to start seeing your name. They're going to start following you. They're going to start engaging with your content, etc. The same situation, the same idea of that is applicable across many industries. The key though, is to start from a fundamental understanding of whether or not the people that you're trying to reach are actually using that channel. If I was trying to connect with developers and engineers, I could try very, very hard to use LinkedIn to do that and probably fail 
consistently because the engineers, developers aren't necessarily using LinkedIn the same way that a mar- group of marketers would use it. They're using it primarily to just have a presence. They were told at a conference that that's what they should do. But it, for the most part, they're spending time in communities like Hacker News. They're spending time on GitHub. They're spending times in very different corners of the internet that a marketer might not be spending time on. So you have to start by understanding where your audience is spending time, have empathy to have conversations with them around, like, where are you spending time? Like, where do you spend your afternoons browsing through the web? What do you do for fun, et cetera? And then you go into those communities and you reverse engineer the type of content that an audience wants on them. And then you use that to inspire the content that you should be going back and giving it to them. This is consistent across the board. If I'm try, I remember in my early on in my career, I ran a campaign. This was before my B2B life and we were trying to connect with moms and we were like, okay, how can we reach just moms who are looking for recipes, looking to create great dishes? We were selling a, a chocolate bar of some sort. And what we did was we looked at Pinterest and we noticed that they were pinning a bunch of these recipes. So we could have just been like, okay, so we need to run ads on Pinterest. Instead, we reached out to like 20 of the top recipe bloggers. This was back in like 2014. And we sent them the chocolate bar and we said, start making amazing, delicious recipes. Like just do your thing. Here's our bars, come up with something. A bunch of the bloggers took the bars, they created amazing like recipes, they took photos, they shared it on their blog, that content got pinned like crazy. And as a result of that, we were able to get a successful campaign. But it all started by fundamentally knowing where our audience was spending time, and then reverse engineering the type of content they wanted and use that to inspire content that we should create as well. When you understand where your audience lives, do you choose to only live in those channels or is there a competitive advantage to test other channels? Yeah, there is a competitive advantage to testing other channels, but only after you have knocked that one specific channel out of the park. My dad always had this saying, he would say, it's better to have one good kid than two bad. And I think the (laughs) same thing exists when it comes to these distribution channels. It's better to be really, really good and amazing at continuously nailing it on LinkedIn than to be mediocre on LinkedIn and mediocre on Facebook and mediocre on Quora and mediocre on Reddit. Makes absolutely no sense. Be really, really good at one channel before you jump on to the next one. I see that happening time and time again. If you are going into this early on and you still don't really know, how can I use Twitter? How can I use Reddit? How can I use Snapchat? You have to start by becoming really good at one before you start jumping to the other ones because your energy is limited. It's a it's a limited resource. So you have to allocate your energy to learning these channels in sprints. And once you have it, then you move to the next one. I've done every channel except for like TikTok. And all of them take time to figure out the game. Like I can, I can speak with confidence that if I wanted to create a piece of content to go viral on Reddit, I can do it. You want me to create a piece of content that's going to hit on LinkedIn? I can do it. On SlideShare, I can do it. I haven't spent the energy to learn TikTok. I don't think I'm going to spend the energy to learn TikTok. (laughs) Although I do love it, I respect everyone who has cracked it. I'm one of those people who I used to be like, oh, look, you're getting old in the game. You're not going to figure this stuff out. You need to. But my energy is so limited now. Um, So I'm not going after TikTok. But that's essentially the game I think that you have to play. You have to figure out what channels can work really well for you, double down on them, and then you move on to the next one. But if I was just starting my career, don't get me wrong, like marketing millennials, if you are early in your career and you're listening to this, TikTok is probably a game to play. 
like the same way that Snapchat or Instagram and SlideShare were the games to play when I first jumped into the industry, TikTok makes sense. Like if I was fresh into marketing, I would learn how to use TikTok to create content about marketing. And then I would just, once I cracked it, I would start distributing that content on other channels, unless it's banned where you live, which I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You bring up a really good point though. We've talked a lot about now kind of channel strategy. What makes good content? So it's very different depending on the person that you're trying to connect with. But I believe fundamentally us as humans want three different types of content. We want content that's either going to educate us, we want content that's going to engage us, or we want content that's going to entertain us. And if it does one of those three E's, then it's going to be a piece of content that you as a creator should probably consider creating. Let's talk about each of those for a second. When it comes to educational content, I'm not talking about a lecture that you would get necessarily in a lecture hall. I'm just talking about content that provides Provide you with information that you may not have known or information that you are interested in learning. Meaning you go to Google and you're looking for an answer to a question. The content on the other end should educate you on that question that you're asking. It could be that a product that you're already using is educating you on whether or not this new feature that they've developed is actually going to benefit your career, benefit your life. Or if you want to go into the world of sports, it's educating you on how you should actually adjust and allocate the people in your football lineup for fantasy sports. Like that's educational content. From an engaging content, this is where you start to have conversations with people. People want to have dialogue. People want to feel connected to real people. So by having conversations on social, you engage with them. By showing people a little bit of the person behind the corporate face is also a great way to engage with folks, showing them your personality, showing them pictures of you on the weekend, having a quick video that shows you just walking down the street, whatever. That is content people want. And then finally, entertainment doesn't necessarily always have to make you laugh, but that content always does resonate with people if you have a good sense of humor. But inspirational content is also entertaining. And if you can make somebody feel good about themselves, if you can make somebody feel proud or you can make somebody feel like, wow, I feel good after talking to you, then you have done a great job from that entertainment lane as well. And those are the three types of content that I think every single time, if you're about to press publish on a tweet, a blog post, LinkedIn update, a video on YouTube, or even a podcast, if you are not accomplishing one of those three things, then it is probably not a piece of content that you should contribute to the world. I would slam dunk on that. (laughs) I like it. I want to get into a point that you made earlier about reverse engineering your content and your audience. Because, for example, like I sometimes just use, and I recently be doing this, like testing content on Twitter to see if it will pop off on LinkedIn. Well, I just started investing on Twitter, but there's like even a deeper way of doing it. And I know there's like the Reddit communities and Quora and stuff like that, but I want to just hear your like reverse engineering strategy. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I think oftentimes most creators overlook is the importance of looking back at the content that you've done personally in the past and reverse engineering why that content has worked well. So on Twitter, on LinkedIn, et cetera, all of these content channels provide you with data and insights into how much reach a certain post had, how much engagement a certain post had, et cetera. So once you start to look at trends around, okay, every single time that I put out a tweet and it's formatted this way, it's generating engagement, 
That's an insight. Every single time that you go into a subreddit and you notice, oh, every single time people are talking about this topic in this specific subreddit, then that's an insight that you can use to create certain content. For example, if I was to rewind back, let's say two years ago, there was a lot of conversation on Twitter about the unbundling of things like Excel. And the hypothesis was that Excel is one of the most powerful softwares in the world. Everybody uses it, etc. Somebody wrote a piece about the unbundling of Excel. I think it was Thomas Tungus. And it was a great piece, generated tons of traction. He didn't include with it like a graph that a graphic that actually showcased all of the different companies that came out of the unbundling of Excel. But tons of people loved that piece. So what we did at Foundation was we took that idea, we went deeper with it, and we recognize, okay, it generated engagement four or five years ago. Let's take this and modernize it a little bit. Let's create a graphic with it, et cetera. Let's bring that to the market. And people loved it. It generated tons of engagement, tons of sales as it relates to our business. And it's done extremely well. We took that same idea that generated traction two years ago and applied it to a different lane around the unbundling of G Suite. So we reverse engineered the fact that this piece worked well in the past. Now we know that it will work well in the future. We just have to talk about other solutions that get unbundled. G Suite was one of them and that piece took off as well. So I think the key to reverse engineering is really not being afraid to look at the past and content that has generated results and then experiment to your point, Daniel, around like, okay, let's experiment with formats that other people have used. Let's experiment with different ways to tell this story and see which ones resonate. That's really the key. I have a question. Do you feel willing to experiment within these channels that are maybe your primary channel or the channel that you really are kind of dedicated to, if they unveil like a new tool or platform, is that something that you try to tap into as well? Yeah, I try to experiment often. Like I think experimentation is very important. It's something that everybody should embrace. It not only is good from the sense that it just like gets you more uncomfortable doing the common practice of experiments, but also there's value in experimentation because it can give you a new opportunity. When most channels release a new feature, that feature becomes its focus. So when LinkedIn launches video, guess what? Their algorithm quickly shifts to actually amplify video. Sure, after six months of traction, if they start to see like they don't like what's happening with video, they might scale back the algorithm. But if you're there early and you generate traction, you're going to stand out. Same way with Instagram. Instagram just rolled out Reels. Like double down on Reels, folks. Like I don't get it. It's clear that when you go to the Discover page, everything is a Reel. Reel here, Reel there. Like it's all over the place. Why? Because that's what they want to validate within their product team as being a great format of content. So if you create a reel, you have an opportunity to reach more people than you would if you just put up a static post. That's definitely why I advise people to be often the like first mover when it comes to a feature that's rolled out by these channels is because it gives you an advantage to actually have a bit of attention arbitrage, so to speak, where the platforms are going to give you more reach. So you may as well take advantage of it. Love that. That's such a great point. I mean, I never thought of it that way, but like... I've always seen like when they release the new feature that just testing it just for fun, but I never thought it as they're like, they're doubling down on promoting the features. Yeah. They always have some type of motive behind it, right? Like with LinkedIn rolling out stories, if you invest time and energy right now into stories, you are going to get more attention than you would typically with a standard piece of content that you share. Because LinkedIn wants stories to work. They want They're valuing it. They're valuing that type of content way more. So you wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if you did it consistently 
that you just seen like a massive spike in the amount of engagement on your content. But I think you just hit the key consistently, not just trying it once and being done and being like, these are our metrics from it. You have to consistently A, experiment, but also B, understand what is working and not working, kind of adjusting to really find that sweet spot. Yeah, 100%. And consistency is the hardest thing. Like, I don't think folks understand as much as it's cool to talk about Reddit, as much as it's cool to talk about LinkedIn and Twitter, the winning piece of the puzzle when it comes to content is consistency. The winning piece of life is consistency. Like, let's take this up a level. Consistency is everything. Whether you're talking about consistency and showing up in your work, whether you're talking about consistency and delivering for clients, delivering for your managers, your team, your peers, consistency in doing anything from like a health perspective. Consistency is the ultimate cheat code, but it's also the hardest thing in the world because there's so many distractions. There's so many other things that are nice and fun pulling us away to do. And I get it. Like um, we're all human, but at the end of the day, consistency, while it will be the most difficult thing to do and embrace, it will also be the most rewarding across so many elements of life. I always say consistency is a great substitute for brilliance. Right, right. And even like football, like we used to be graded in football, right? For every game. And if you consistently get B pluses, right? And then someone you one game someone gets an A plus one game and then a C the next game like you're not gonna they don't trust you to come out every game to play like that it's just like content too like if you're consistently showing up at like above average people will be there for you like you don't have to be that A plus all the time exactly yeah if you can you're like an anomaly which is great like don't get me wrong if you're an A plus every single time well done you probably got something going that's like you're you're on the Adderall or something, but like keep going, <laughs> like go. That's awesome. Like you're if you're A plus nonstop, amazing. But if you are someone who can hit the A and then you're getting Fs and that's like a consistent like up and down, like you're you're gonna have a very hard time gaining trust with your community and with your audience. So you definitely, I hear you one hundred percent. Like you want to just be consistent nonstop as much as you can. I wanted to get in the conversation of repurposing because I think this is like such a big part of being consistent, the repurposing. Cause you, I feel like a lot of people think you have to create a new idea every single time. And that is false statement. Yeah, I agree. I think content repurposing is a cheat code to marketing at scale on the internet today. The post that you share on LinkedIn can be very quickly and easily turned into an email that you send out to a newsletter. That email that you send out to a newsletter can be repurposed and tweaked into a blog post that goes up on your site. When that blog post goes up, you can wait two weeks and then republish that on Medium. That same post that is on Medium can then get submitted into Reddit. And that same post that's on Reddit can become a story on your Instagram. People don't embrace this idea of repurposing content. This podcast, for example, like right now, someone is listening to us, we're inside of their ears. It's one of the most intimate things that you can actually have happen through content. And that's cool. But this can be taken another step. If we clipped up this podcast and turned it into tweets, that's amazing content that is now repurposed on Twitter. You can take this podcast, snip it up a bit, 
turn videos on it, throw our faces on it, have transcriptions on it, throw that up on LinkedIn. That's a great piece of content that's now going to generate engagement on a new platform. You take that same piece and you ask somebody to transcribe the question that Ross answered at 10 minutes all the way through to 12 minutes and turn that into an actual blog post and throw in some imagery around the fact that he was talking about this, this, and this. That's a full blog post. You do the same thing for what he talked about at 19 minutes to 20 minutes. Another blog post. Then you take those blog posts and you turn them into like SlideShare presentations. And then those SlideShare presentation goes up on SlideShare. You then take every single individual slide in that SlideShare and you turn it into a post that's going to go up on your Instagram feed. And at this point, you are exhausted. But you have created some amazing content in the process. That is what content repurposing is all about. You have to get creative. You have to, without question, put in the time and energy to do it. And it is not easy, but it will be worth it. Because at the end of the day, most people will press publish on a piece of content and think that that is the end of the life cycle for that asset, when in reality, that is just the beginning. You now have to distribute that piece of content as much as possible on the channels where your audience is spending time in the channels that you can actually be good at to reach your audience. Again, of course, if you don't have a great presence on Quora or you don't have anybody following you on Twitter, it might not make sense to reformat this for a Twitter audience right now. But if you have a LinkedIn audience, if you have a medium audience, you're going to look at how can I repurpose this piece of content for the channels I know my audience is spending time. Dan Ferg, I, you, you were in an environment where that was like the king and queen, like NFL, like you have full games where you can take games all weekend where you can chop up content, put it on Instagram, put it on TikTok, put it on, make it a show, a highlight show, put it on YouTube. I want to hear about that. I was just going to say, I will say about 50% of my regular content was repurposed when I was working at the NFL. A lot of it just centered around the fact that we knew what hit with our audience. If there was a game or a play or a player or a moment or an anniversary, like you knew that was on the calendar. That was absolutely planned out and since the day it happened. And so you you do know, like they almost become celebratory in that moment. And so, I mean, repurpose is very valuable, but I also think that even that community that develops around that repurposed content is still going to give you even added like next steps from that content. So... You know, maybe it's a just sheer love with Super Bowl quarterbacks. Okay. Feel me? Like maybe it's not about this quarterback throwing the touchdown pass on this date every single time. Maybe it's yeah. just the sheer love for the winning Super Bowl quarterbacks are the shit. Um, you know, maybe it was just a sheer obsession with Brett Favre. We did a thing on Brett Favre's birthday that was one of the biggest pieces of engaged, or excuse me, shared pieces of content. It was him. It was Brett Favre through the years. One of my jobs was to physically go in and cut his face out for the his rookie year to his retired year. And it was this like massive piece of just like, I mean, it almost looked like, what is it? If you get arrested, like your mugshot, it was almost like mugshots, but more or less just like his like team photo. And it was amazing to see just the progression of like football over the years through Brett Favre's face. And it sounds silly, but like, man, that piece of content served so fucking well for us. So that's awesome. To your point, repurpose content. I actually had to fight for that. Do you remember at Snack they didn't understand the concept that if you 
tried new content, you're experimenting and the content does well. You reserve it again, that this actually becomes like an anchor piece. No matter what you put into this position, that type of content will inevitably educate your audience or entertain your audience or uh, actually engage your audience. No matter what's happening, it was something that we could kind of build into repeatable content for us as well. I love that. I have an interesting question. I heard this from someone, but I want to ask you, what is like something that's common among all marketers that they're doing wrong right now? Wrong. That's yeah. an interesting question. So I think the one thing that... So all marketers still have a broken idea, I believe, around the importance of like the little micro interactions that they have with folks. I think this is a pure ego play where a lot of folks get to a point, even marketers for some reason, to a point where they think, oh, I'm unreachable. Like I'm so good. I'm so big. I've got so many people following me on Twitter. I no longer have to respond back to the person who's tweeting at me after I tweet out, what's the best book you've read this year? And then they don't respond to any of the people who are tweeting them the best books that they've read in the last year. I think those micro interactions are a huge miss. People are people. And every single time you ignore those people who are taking time out of their life to respond to you is a missed opportunity to connect with folks. So I think that's one of the things that I'm noticing. And this isn't amongst, again, people who are like early on in their career and people who don't have huge audiences. It's more in the the influencer side of things, but not acknowledging the fact that like everyone is a human. So just interact and have a conversation with them. And I get that you're busy, but don't pretend that you want people to comment on your posts and have a conversation if you actually don't want to have a conversation with people and you're just fishing for engagement so you can skew the algorithm. I think that's a broken approach. And I think eventually it's going to get, it's going to catch up to people. So that's something that I think a lot of marketers are doing wrong today. Another thing that I think a lot of marketers are doing wrong would be still not embracing distribution. Like as much as I'm talking about it often, I still think it's one of the biggest opportunities today in the world of content. So many companies, so many marketers still are measured based off of the volume of the content that they create and not the volume of the places and people they reach with their content or the ability to spread it. And I think that that is a broken approach. And hopefully by 2025, we will shift that completely. And I'll take this down to a micro level one more time. I think people fundamentally also don't promote their content enough because we have a fundamental fear of being judged. We don't want people to judge us as being the person who's too promotional on their social. We don't want to be unfollowed by our friends from university. We don't want them to say, oh, look at Ross. He's always on Instagram just putting up his tweets. He's not sharing anything on Instagram about his family life, blah, blah, blah. He's all business. Stop being afraid of being judged and start being afraid of the fact that you have some amazing ideas that you're not getting out there to the world because of your own fear. Like I think fear holds back so many people and it is irrational, it's misplaced. And the only thing that you should fear is the fact that you don't reach your full potential because you were so afraid of being judged by people who weren't going to pay your mortgage anyway. So just share your content. That's how you get paid. (laughs) I don't even think for me, when I first started, it was more like imposter syndrome because it's like, I think like a lot of platforms when you start out, like you see all the the big people and the big people usually those are like most of the time are these like founders and CMOs and authors of books and stuff like that. And you're just like, Oh goodness, how am I going to, but why would anybody listen to me? Like I'm just like this marketer that 
loves marketing, who wants to share my thoughts, but totally squashed that like thought process. It's like, and it's pretty. It's so important to squash that. I think like everybody needs to fundamentally understand that your own life up until this point gives you a perspective that nobody else in the world has. And that on its own is interesting. And when you take all of your perspective and you have a commitment to make your perspective even more unique by doing cool things and interesting things, then you're going to continuously be able to add an interesting voice and an interesting value to the world, right? Like, like Ferg has a very unique, interesting stack of experience. So when you combine sports, you combine snacks, you combine marketing, all of those things into one little ball and you go to the internet and you start talking and creating content people are going to listen because that's a very, very unique perspective, right? Like you have to embrace what makes you different and lean into it as much as you can. I will. I'm taking (laughs) this note. (laughs) I like it. You have given us so many notes tonight. I think it's time to like liven it up for just a hot second to end, end out the episode. This section is really just us asking you a question that basically what comes to your mind first but it really just kind of levels that playing field. So if you're down to play, we're down to ask. Let's play it. Let's roll the dice. All right. I will kick this one off. I will ask you my favorite question. What was your first job like ever? First job ever was a boys and girls club camp counselor. So I was a camp counselor, loved it, did it for many years. I actually turned down internships because I wanted to be a camps counselor for a good chunk of my university life. I love it. That's awesome. I'm going to ask you this question because since you love music by your username, the cool is cool. (laughs) What is the song and artist that gets you in the mood? So this is a good one. I love so many different artists. I could riff for hours on what my playlists look like, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've never called it this album before or song, but Casey and Jojo, all my life, it is the song that me and my now wife, then high school girlfriend, danced to when we were young and we danced to as our first song at our wedding. So that is always a song and a track. And when it shows up in shuffle and it hits my ears, makes me think of her, but also allows me to kind of go back to the uh, time when things were simpler and you were just a high school kid with a crush. Aw, I love that one. <laughs> love it. Seriously, it's playing in my head. Sorry. Nice. It's, it's such a good song. Question. Good song. Like, um... Exactly. So all right. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. So I will ask you, of all of the apps on your phone, which one is your favorite slash which one do you use the most? Ooh, good question. So I probably use the Twitter app the most. I'm on there scrolling, refreshing all the time. I definitely use Twitter the most. My favorite app, people are going to think is boring, but it's my basic TD app for my bank because I have become obsessed with investing. So I've been geeking out lately over investing in stocks and I'm always on the market studying it. That has me geeked out a lot lately. And I've been loving just watching companies companies in the, the market in 2020. That's fun. I'm not surprised. You said you're a gamer. It's <laughs> a game. It is true. It is true. Mm-hmm. I know me too. I love the stocks because I'm super competitive and it's such a competitive thing. What is your favorite brand currently? So this one is going to catch some heat from some folks, but I am going to stick my neck out there and still say, I love the NFL. I am a huge fan 
Like I know they're doing things and people are like, okay, they're whack now. I'm still an NFL fan. I am missing an NFL game right now, but I'll get back to that in a second. But I'm a huge NFL fan still. I still love the brand. Good for you. I'm proud of them for honestly weathering the storm. And even at that, just still having a stance. It's tough to have an opinion these days. Yeah, it's true. They're making some good strides. Like I'm always rooting for the underdog. And some folks will say NFL's not an underdog. I think they are. Like if you were to ask me two years ago, what's the future look like for football? It isn't going to exist. Football's like going to die. But I think they're doing some interesting things. And I think they're uh, they're going to come out of this thing okay. I love that. Would you agree they're evolving? Oh, 100%. This is a whole different NFL than it was four years ago. You gave us the three E's of content, but I think the E of 2020 is definitely like evolving. That's true. 100%. I would agree with that. I want to know what your favorite book is. I'm sorry. I just need to know. Fair enough. So my favorite book, and it's the book that I one read every year and I gift every year. It's called How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. It's a great book. I love it. It's something that I truly do advise everyone read. It fundamentally changed the way that I viewed my own perspective on life. I think it's a great read that everyone should dive into at some point. And last question I think we have for you is who's your go-to influencer in personal and professional? So from an influence standpoint, the one person whose career I've been obsessed with is Robert F. Smith. He created a company called Vista Equity Partners, which is a VC company. They acquire companies. So they acquire a bunch of software companies. And he's one of the the richest men in North America. And he's done an amazing job. He is a huge inspiration of mine in terms of the work he's done in both the Black community, but also in the business community as a whole. So I love his work. On another level, there's a lady who I've connected with probably six years ago now named Alex Wolf. And she creates content that I don't think a lot of people are really even thinking about yet. So like three years ago, she talked about like why the like button is bad for society. And then... Netflix creates the new social media movie and it's talking about essentially like what she was talking about three years ago. She has some amazing content out there on the web. I strongly recommend that you check her out. Alex Wolf, she's got some amazing content. She probably wouldn't want me to call her an influencer. She's just like a content creator, but yeah, she does some amazing work. Hey, when you influence, you influence. It's true. (laughs) And lastly, I want to leave the opportunity for you to promote yourself. So... Any social handles, people you want to follow, anything, any new projects you want them to look at is your channel. Yeah, so I would say definitely check out my Twitter handle. We've talked about it. It's at the coolest cool. But also check out my company, foundationinc.co. We're always on the hunt for hungry, ambitious, creative people who love marketing and love to geek out about this stuff. So if you are on the hunt for a gig, by all means, feel free to reach out. Even though a job posting isn't up or that a listing that doesn't seem like it might fit with your skill set isn't there, if you have the right mindset, then we can find a place for you probably on the team. So by all means, feel free to reach out. We would love to connect with you and see if there's an opportunity down the road. And I always just love connecting with ambitious people anyway. So connect with me on LinkedIn. You can do a quick search for Ross Simmons. Send me a request. Let me know that you heard this through this podcast. I'll be sure to hit accept. Love it. Ross, you're the boss. Thanks, Ferg. I appreciate it. (laughs) I can't wait to stay in touch with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to kind of educate us on your insights and even just to give us your authentic self. 
Thanks so much. And thank you guys for doing this. I think this is great for millennials. I think this is great for marketers. And I think the more people who can get this type of information, it means the better the content's going to be for all of us to consume. So it's a win-win all around. Thank you folks for doing this. Really appreciate your time. 